Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. Well, tonight I want to look in uh, Daniel chapter 11, continue our deep dive into the book of Daniel, which, you know, is a fascinating book. It's one of the more controversial books. Uh, what, what do all the images mean and, and, and all that? And... You know, it's actually one of the books that liberal theologians love to attack the most. They want to dismantle the book of Daniel. And they do that by claiming that the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C. as opposed to the 6th, 5th century B.C. where it claims to be written. And the reason that they take that stance is because the prophecies that are given in Daniel are so accurate that the liberal theologians think there is no way anyone could have predicted these things beforehand so accurately. So they claim everything was written after all that stuff occurred. They don't believe in predictive prophecy. They deny the supernatural. They deny that God can tell the future, control the future, or anything like that. But they are very wrong about the date of the book of Daniel. But they are very right in the fact that the book of Daniel, God gave predictive prophecy that is so accurate. And tonight we're going to look at at, at some of that. It's so accurate for what is going to happen in the future, Daniel's future, now our history. But because God was so accurate with what would happen in Daniel's future, guess what? He's as accurate about our future as well. And so the promises hold true. We can can hold firm to the fact that the promises of Scripture hold true. Because God said this, that, and the other thing will happen. Well, guess what? They happened. And so now for us, when God says something is going to happen, it will happen. And chapter 11, where I'm going to begin today and prob- probably barely begin to scratch the surface, we see probably some of the most accurate predictions of history, other than the, you know, the prophecies of Christ. Um, what we have here is, it, this is the last vision of Daniel. It started in chapter 10. It goes through the end of the book. And it it, it tells Daniel what is going to be happening with his people Israel. Daniel has been in distress about what is going to happen to his people. And so Daniel lifted up many prayers to God, hoping that what God had promised in the past would come true in the future. Specifically, well, okay, the 70 years of, of captivity are up. Will we be restored to Jerusalem? Will the temple be restored? Will the people be brought back? To the land. And, and so God actually, you know, gives several visions to Daniel regarding that fact. And God has a great love for Daniel, as you know, I'll read something here in, in, in just a second. And, and God's like, this is what is going to happen. He loves Daniel. He, he sends, now for this particular one in chapter 10 through 12, he sends an angel to speak with Daniel to tell him what is going to happen to to Israel. And uh, 
unfortunately, it might not have been the news that Daniel wanted to hear. Because, yeah, the people are going to be restored to the land, but over the next few centuries, there's going to be many, many trials. You know, we think that we see the promises of God that, yeah, we're going to be in glory and, you know, no more tears and all the wonderful promises of what we have in store in our future. But guess what? That doesn't mean we won't have our trials here. But just because we have our trials here doesn't mean God somehow lost control. In fact, as we're going to find out tonight, kind of see tonight, no, God has everything under control. He knows what is happening. He knows what's going to happen. And He has sovereignty and providence over all of it. And so God sends an angel to talk with Daniel. Tell him about the trials that are about to come. But God, even in the trials, is moving Israel toward a purpose, toward a specific point. And we know that God was moving everything to Jesus Christ. God is going to set up an everlasting kingdom. From starting in Daniel chapter 2, God, through visions and promises, said there was going to be an everlasting kingdom, and it was brought forth and inaugurated by Jesus Christ. But before we get to the point of Jesus Christ, Israel would be going through a lot. It would be going through a whole lot. Now to give you some context for chapter 11, let me read the last verses of chapter 10 and into verse 1 of chapter 11. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 10, this is what Daniel records. He said, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So that's what the angel, we, we notice that in, in chapter 10, you know, chapter 10 is interesting. It gives us a glimpse behind the scenes in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm. And what we find is there's great battles that are happening in the heavens and the spiritual that affect what happened here on the earth. And this angel was sent the first day that, God, that Daniel had put up a specific prayer. But he was not able to get to Daniel for three weeks because the prince of Persia was fighting against him, was preventing him from getting to Daniel. How does that all happen? I'm not really sure. But the angel was finally able to come to Daniel and uh, talked about the fact that, yeah, there's a war going on in the heavenlies against the prince of Persia, some demonic force that was behind uh, the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire. And then he even says, but then, you know, I'm, we're going to be fighting against the prince of Greece. But that hadn't happened yet. That was going to happen in the future. How did the angel know that? I mean, God told him, but, but he talks about this book of truth. 
God has it written down in the book of truth, which seems to be God's plans for history. And from that book, the angel now would let Daniel know what was going to be happening to the people of Israel over the next several centuries. And, you know, there, there's so much here, there's so much detail here that we just have to take it piece by piece because it is an amazingly accurate description. Well, we're not amazed. We know it because it comes from God. But historians are amazed at how accurate the prophecies are because of what would come. And what is also interesting is that several uninspired books of history confirm what the inspired Word of God has said. God is in control. Past, present, future. What is going to happen to Daniel's people? What did God say was going to come? Well, let's first look at verses 2 through 4. He said, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now the vision has come to Daniel at the height of the Medo-Persian Empire at the point of the reign of Darius or Darius the first. The angel says that there would be three more kings and then a fourth king would become strong and, and kind of try and fight with Greece, stir up his kingdom against Greece. Now, the issue is there, there were a lot more than four more kings, uh, four more emperors in the Medo-Persian Empire. And so there's debate about which four kings it's talking about. Some believe it's speaking of the last three kings that would be part of the Medo-Persian Empire, leading up to Darius III, who would then be defeated by the Greeks. But a more likely possibility is that it's talking about the next three kings. Because the kings after those next three kings, or next four kings, they were pretty weak and, and the leadership was watered down. And so it's probably talking about what these next four kings uh, would do. And so the three kings that it talks about is Cambyses, Smyrtus, and Darius Hystapheses. That's a hard word to say. But then the fourth king would be Xerxes I, who was very rich. And it was recorded that he began to do some expeditions into Greek lands, but he was unsuccessful in subduing them. And because he was unsuccessful in subduing him, and because he riled them up, you know, eventually the Greeks and the Macedonians got annoyed. The Macedonians and the Greeks kind of joined forces. And it would be some time later, but the Greeks and the Macedonians would eventually overtake the Medo-Persian Empire. How did they do that? Verse 3 talks about a mighty king. Who was this mighty king? It was under the leadership of Alexander the Great, who was a Macedonian, who led this empire 
to quickly conquer the area from Europe to India and all sorts of, they say, history says, and you know, we don't know how accurate this is, that Alexander the Great, such a mighty king, he took over the lands so quickly, he, he, he cried one night because there were no more lands to conquer. You know, that, that's an, maybe an old wives' tale, but he was a mighty king who swiftly took over that area. But unfortunately, he died at a very young age, 32 years old. And after he died, it just sort of, everything fell apart because there was no succession plan in place for what would happen if Alexander died. As verse 4 states, Alexander's kingdom was broken and divided, but it would not go to his posterity. It wouldn't go to anyone in his family. There's conflicting reports in history about whether Alexander had sons or not. If he did have sons, they were assassinated, some would say. But he didn't have sons who would take over the empire for him. And so what happened is that the generals under his leadership started, you know, doing the whole brokering for power. You know, they started this power struggle. And it literally, his empire was split to the four winds. It would eventually be split into four different sections, four different mini-empires, if you want to call them. And the generals took them over. Now, only two of the four empires are important for the Israelites. The other two didn't really have anything to do with the Israelites. And so, you know, what we read here in chapter 11, it only talks about two of the kingdoms. It talks about the south and it talks about the north. The Ptolemies would uh, be based in Egypt. They are the kingdom to the south. And so when you read about a king in the south, that's the Ptolemies. The Seleucids would take over in, the Sir in Syria. That was to the north of Israel. And so when you read about the king of the north, it's talking about the Seleucids. And here's Israel, caught in the middle between the two of them. And it was a very strategic location, and so Israel suffered under the battles of going back and forth, back and forth between these two empires. And, you know, most of the rest of the chapter deals with the, with the battles and the political intrigue and everything that would happen to Israel between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. And this is going to sound strange, but when you read some of this and, and you know, you, you plug in what happened in history, this almost reads like a soap opera. I mean, all the political entry, or maybe, you know, an episode of whatever your favorite thriller spy thing is. I don't know. But, I mean, it's just that what they did to try and control the area was amazing. So what did they do? Look at verse 5. Then the king of the south, shall, the Ptolemies, shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. This verse gives us kind of a, a history of what happened between the Ptolemies and the Seleucid empires, how they were formed. The king of the south refers to Ptolemy I Soter, who was the, king, the ruler of Egypt uh, at, at the time. He, and one of the princes, you know, it talks about his, one of his princes, one of Ptolemy's princes. It's actually talking about Seleucus I Nicator. Seleucus was appointed satrap over Babylonia, but then he was run off by another general, 
and he fled to the Ptolemies for protection, but then he went back and got rid of that other general named Antigonus, and he took over that area, and he actually grew a greater empire than the Ptolemies did. So that's how the Seleucid Empire started. And it began the conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So what, did, what happened in the years to come? We'll look at verse 6. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. The next ruler of the Ptolemies, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, he tried to build an alliance with the Seleucids. Well, we, all this fighting isn't doing us any good, so let's, let, let's try and make an alliance. And so he did that by marrying his daughter Berenice to the ruler of the Seleucids, Antiochus II, who's known as Antiochus Theos. Well, the problem was Antiochus was already married. So in order to form this alliance and maybe bring some peace to the land, he had to uh, divorce his wife, Laodice. But Laodice had two sons with Antiochus, Seleucus and another Antiochus. There's a whole lot of Antiochuses in here. So they would succeed in the throne. So, you know, supposedly the, he had a son with Berenice, and so that son would take over the Seleucid Empire. Well, two years later, Antiochus II, not really sure what happened, but not very happy with Berenice, he left Berenice and returned to his ex-wife, Laodice. But Laodice had her revenge. She arranged for the death of Antiochus and Berenice and their son and all of their servants. So as the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. There's a warning, guys, somewhere in there. And by doing that, she then ensured that her older son, Seleucus II, Callinicus, that he would take over his father's place in, in ruling the Seleucids. At least that was the plan. Well, look at verses 7 and 8. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king, of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So, in, in the same year of her death, Berenice's father died. So, Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, Eugurides, he began to rule in Egypt. Well, he was obviously none too happy with what happened to his sister. And to avenge his sister's death, he invaded the Seleucid Empire. He took over Antioch and Seleucia and other areas. He found Laodice and murdered her. And when he left the area, he brought with him all their idols and all their valuables. You know, according to verse 8. He carried home the spoils of war. Now, what happens is when you do that, what you're saying is your gods are weak and my gods are strong because my gods defeated your gods, 
And so by carrying that away, that's what he was saying. Your God, you, these Seleucid gods, they weren't strong enough to, to stop the defeat of that, uh, of that area. Obviously, we know they're nothing but idols, if anything. But, you know, for following, you know, chapter 10, there's demonic powers behind them, too. None of them are strong against our God. But anyway, that's what he did. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Well, Laodice's son, Seleucus, Seleucus uh, II, Callinicus, well, he obviously wasn't going to just stand there when his mom was, was murdered, and so he temp attempted a retaliation against the Ptolemies, but he failed miserably. But eventually he died, and his sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, Magnus, better known as Antiochus the Great, they gathered an enormous force to go and charge, you know, to go south to wipe out the Ptolemies. But before the battle happened, Seleucus III was killed in Asia Minor, so Antiochus the Great recaptured Seleucia. He did push the Ptolemies back south, and he had successful campaigns in Phoenicia and Palestine. And so, you know, they were able to take over bits and pieces of, of Palestine at this time. And as we'll see, that it continued some more. In verses 11 and 12, it says, well, then the king of the south moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So Ptolemy IV came to the Egyptian throne. He was full of rage of what the Seleucids did. And, and so he, he decided to find a way to halt the harassment he was receiving from the north. And so with a large army, he met Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, at a place called Raphia, and it, which was in the Palestinian frontier, and, and Ptolemy IV was victor. But he didn't take advantage of his success. He didn't kind of press more forward. He did get into Jerusalem, and he tried to enter the temple, but he was deterred by God. And that's actually recorded in, um, in 3rd Maccabees. Obviously, that's not part of Scripture, but, you know, that's just uh, some Jewish history there. Third, and so uh, he was prevented. So the south, again, regained Palestine uh, area, the Israel area, that whole area, you know, not just Israel alone, but that whole area. But then he was defeated at another place. And so, you know, the back and forth kept going till they made some, some peace, but he, he didn't gain the victory, as it says there in verse 12, because he didn't push. He didn't continue the push. He just kind of gave up. Well, then verses 13 through 16, it says, For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. 
Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So again, more back and forth. Over, the four, over a 14-year period, Antiochus the Great invaded what's now called Turkey. He campaigned to the east. He started going elsewhere other than fighting with the Ptolemies. Uh, he was just trying to regain the old Seleucid Empire, the land that they had lost. But he made an alliance with others. He made an alliance with Philip V from Macedonia with the hope of invading Egypt. But as verse 14 indicates, you know, many shall rise against the king of the south, including several Jews, but uh, they didn't always succeed. Now, during this time, Ptolemy IV died. His infant son, Ptolemy V, uh, came into power, he, but he was an infant son, and there was insurrection and, and a lot of political chaos in, in uh, Egypt. And so the Seleucids, they made their way back into Israel, taking over the area eventually. The Egyptians, the Ptolemies, would withdraw. And actually, it, it kind of was a back and forth for three years. You know, the Seleucids would win for a while, the Ptolemies would win for a while, and Israel kept going back and forth between the two. Um, but eventually, the uh, Seleucids would finally take their stand. They would take over Israel, and, and they would stay there. Um, the Egyptians eventually had no strength to resist, as verse 15 says. And there, there was a lot of political dissension and insurrection going on because of the infant king. So Antiochus the Great finally took over Jerusalem, and he was in control of, of Israel, which is called the Glorious Land in verse 16. It's funny that, you know, it talks about the Jews would help in, in some of that insurrection against the Ptolemies, but it would be the Seleucids that would do so much evil to the Jews. Now, this is all history. I mean, I barely scratched the surface of this chapter. And this is all history that was written hundreds of years before it happened. I mean, to the minute details of the political workings and the battles that were going to happen. This goes to show the trustworthiness of God's Word. The Word can be trusted. And it shows that God is in control. And God is in control of the most minute details of what happens in the world of politics, in the world of history, in the world of the empires. And if he can control those big things, entire empires are at his command, under his control. Guess what? Our lives are completely in his control. So I was thinking, you know, that I don't know why, obviously I've read Daniel many times, but the, that, that whole thing about the book of truth, for some reason, just never clicked with me before until studying it right now. The book of truth, God has history already written out. 
And it, it's amazing. But then it made me think, well, wait a minute. The Bible talks about other books. I mean, yeah, there's the book of life, those who will go to heaven because they've trusted in Jesus Christ. But even before that, it made me think of Psalm 139.16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you hear that? Not only does God have a book about what's happening in history, God has a book for you. It's the you book. Insert your name. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. When as yet... There was none of them. The days hadn't even happened yet. And yet God already had them written in the book. Nothing has taken God by surprise. Absolutely nothing. He already knew it was going to happen. And he knows where he's leading you. He knows what's going to happen in your future as much as he knows the past and the present. And that means he's in control. And he's moving you toward something if you will trust him. I mean, yeah, your, your book might, it might be written in your book. They constantly fight against what I am working I mean, I don't know. But wouldn't it be a lot easier to just trust what God is doing and praising him that I, I have a book? Not only am I in the book of life, I have a book. And it's about me. God has a book about me. And he is bringing it to its eventual conclusion, the end of the book. But you know what? He's with you every step of the way, so you can trust in him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening, and God bless.